Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Well, John, we have another question. And this one, I think, is going to be controversial. So here it is. What is your opinion about Christians going into the military? Christians serving in the military. The tomato is burning hot, John. What do you say? I think before we can answer the question, we need to frame the military the way the scriptures do. Mm -hmm. What is a military? Uh, when, we, when we're talking about the military, we're talking about the military branches of the United States government. Yes, for us as Americans, that would be the case. So what the military is, is the branch of the kingdom of America whose responsibility it is to secure and protect the borders of the Americans. That's right. Um, so when we, and you know, in the Bible story, what is America? Well, it's one nation among many nations that God has scattered around the world uh, that God has given to their governing bodies responsibility for maintaining um, the peace and stability of the lands that they've been given jurisdiction of, right? So right. Um, we talked about in previous episodes, uh, God's got two teams, a team A and a team B, and he's got the kingdoms of this world that he uses to keep uh, evil in check in the world, to keep theft and crime and rape and pillaging down. So there's a basic level of peace throughout the world. And we talked about God uses world empires to do that. Uh, he doesn't create them. Like humans right. pull together and, and form confederacies and nations uh, that organize around a common vision of what society should look like and then appoint people to power to run them and then uh, conscript armies to defend them and to promote their values throughout the world. Um, that's what we're talking about. Um, would Christians, uh, so that's team A, right? God uses uh, the powers of this world, the governing bodies, uh, to promote order throughout the earth. Um, and then there's team B. In a world that where God is using those governing bodies to keep peace, God has begun a new order, a new social political reality called the kingdom of God. Um, and this kingdom is the people of God who are committed to representing in this world that is passing away uh, God's kingdom vision, which is the future of world history. Um, so while Team A is committed to maintaining the kingdoms of this world that are passing away, Team B is committed to seeking first the kingdom that Jesus brought, which is the kingdom that will last forever. Right? And so, so it's an interesting question um, if the kingdom of God is God's alternative kingdom to the kingdoms of this world um, that Christians are called to seek first, like in their baptisms, I mean, the question should be when you're vetting a baptismal candidate, do you pledge from this point forward to seek first God's kingdom right. and make it the organizing center of your life? If the answer to that is no, then uh, shake the dust off your shoes and move on. They're not discipleship candidate, right? There was Jesus encountered a guy and he, and he welcomed him to join his kingdom adventure. And he said, but can I stick around and bury my father? Can I wait and like yeah. settle Matt? Can I, can I be done seeking first my family? Yeah. And then when I feel like things are all settled there, then I can join the kingdom adventure. And Jesus is like, no, you're not worthy of me. Yeah. Right. And so God's kingdom is the kind of kingdom that becomes the organizing center of your life. Right. And it's the only true eternal kingdom that will last. The only allegiance is to Jesus Christ. That is the first and primary, and in some ways, the only allegiance that a human being has yeah. to enter into the kingdom of God. Yeah. And its way of advancing in this world is through love, is through forgiveness, 
is through reconciliation, mm-hmm. is through the power of the cross. It's a kind of kingdom that doesn't lord over from above, mm-hmm. but offers God's gift That's right. as a gift that people can say yes to or can say no to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the kingdom of God. And the Bible is also clear that the kingdoms of this world are under the dominion of Satan. That's right. Amen. Right? He is the prince of the power of the air. He's got a hand in the machinations of the nations. Um, to be uh, expelled from the kingdom community in First Corinthians is to be handed over to Satan. That's right. That means if you're not in the kingdom of God, then you're finding your place somewhere in the kingdoms of this world. That's right. Um, He's the God of this world. And so it's a curious question when a Christian says, yes, I want to seek first God's kingdom. I want that to be the organizing center of my life. But can I, for a living... Um, Seek first the other kingdoms that Jesus' kingdom has come to replace? Mm-hmm. It's just an awkward question. It's as if uh, someone all their life uh, wanted to play for the New York Yankees. We're both from New York. I think I can say them. True. True. And uh, they finally got scouted, and, and uh, the scouts uh, identified them and brought them into the organization. And um, the team made a formal offer. You're ready to come to the big leagues. Uh, yes. And then once they make it to the bigs and they enter and they're on the Yankees, it's like, all right, but um, do you mind if I also play for the Mets? <laughs> <laughs> you know, can I simultaneously be a part of the New York Yankees yep. and a okay. part of the New York Mets? Mm-hmm. And no coach in the world is going to say, yeah, that's okay. Right? Because to, to join the Yankees is to join a team that is going to, to dominate your time, energy, and resources. You may as well ask the question, can I play for the New York Yankees and also seek first God's kingdom? <laughs> but that's a different question, right? There are lots of commitments besides the military that demand your whole life. Yes. And when it comes to the military, all right, we're not just talking about time and energy and resources. We're talking about your very life because that's what you are demanded to do is to give your life for your country. Absolutely. To put your country first. Absolutely, above everything else. Um, and, and if necessary, uh, people in other countries uh, who stand in the way of the ambitions of your country become people that you're trained in the military to consider subhuman. I mean, there are, there are, I have lots of friends and, and family members even in the military who talk about the training that is a part of going into the military. They need to desensitize you from thinking compassionately upon future enemies mm-hmm. so that you can view them as collateral damage in the fight for freedom. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the interesting thing is if Christians, in a, if, if uh, you know, kingdom communities in America say, you know what? Um, you can seek first um, the, um, you know, in your spare time, you can seek first the interests of America by fighting for their military. And then Christians in uh, Syria are saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you can be a part of the kingdom community and also uh, play a role for the Syrian government that fights against their enemies. And then when Syria and the United States clash in a military conflict, you have Christians... Mm-hmm. Syrian Christians killing, killing fellow Christians and American Christians in the name of their national allegiance. Yeah, that's right. in, in what possible world, you know, according to the teachings of Jesus Christ, can a Christian knowingly kill another Christian mm-hmm. in the name of a kingdom that is different than the kingdom of God? When Christians aren't even authorized to kill non-Christians in the name of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You're not allowed to kill for the one kingdom that matters most, but I will allow you to kill brothers and sisters for a kingdom that we all confess is passing away and is under the dominion of Satan. Yeah, that's that's good. And by the way, um, I just want to make this point. We are answering the question, should a disciple of Jesus, should a Christian join the military? part of the military we're not answering the question are we thankful that we have a military absolutely because i i'm thankful that there's a military in my country 
That's the world question. needs nations, and nations need military. Absolutely. The world yeah. needs the earthly principalities and powers to keep order. So the question is different. It's should a disciple of Jesus, who gives their allegiance to the kingdom of God, and Jesus Christ the King, join the military? And, and as you pointed out, the military asks for your utter allegiance, even to the giving of your blood. So, you know, it's not just, it's not like becoming a school teacher or a chef or a pharmacist or a doctor or a lawyer, right? Well, a lawyer, I don't know about that. Let's back up. That was a joke, folks. <laughs> you know, I would even say that, in, you know, some people would they take offense to the, the possibility that I might suggest that that might be a conflict of interests. Right. And that, so the answer is, hmm. What might be a conflict of interest? To join the military. That could be a conflict of interest because they demand your all, right? While you're on duty, they demand your all. But you've already committed your all to another master. That's right. Right. Uh, I want to say there's probably more occupations than just military that ask of that. Oh, well, that is true, brother. You, you could say professional sports demands your all. Yeah. You could say working in sales for some companies demands your all. Well, I made the point once in a conference that there's a difference between labor and management. Labor is working eight to five. Management demands your soul. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's from the perspective of your time and energy and the pouring out of your life, it's not just the military. But the military is so obvious because yeah. you are being conscripted into something where you are basically signing your blood pledge that you will give your life physically, literally, emotionally, etc., to this cause. In that sense, it's different. But in the other sense, that any job can become an idol. And become something you bow down to and worship. Yeah. Things that enrapture the soul. Yeah, and I found my conversations with people of military experience uh, end up going really well because they know mm. what had what has been asked of them. Mm. They know the songs they were forced to sing that a Christian has no business singing. They know the training they received to view other humans as less than human. They know that there's no way to be a functional part of a kingdom community while being on duty. Like They know that. They know that the things they've been asked to do, they've had to kind of swallow hard because of their faith commitments and go ahead and do it because they had no choice. Like People who have experienced military know that they were asked to give an allegiance that was much higher than they thought they were mm -hmm. getting when they were recruited as a teenager and didn't know yeah, right. what commitment looked like. That's right. Um, the people who have the hardest time with this question are not people who have fought in the military. Yeah. Those people recognize the evils, they recognize the compromises, and most of them wouldn't wish it on any Christian, on Christian grounds. The people who have the hardest time with this question are people who have loved ones who are in the military, but who themselves have not stepped foot <laughs> in the military yeah. camp. It's that that you are saying something that dishonors someone that they love, right? Who who did who uh, who was heroic. Yes. And there's no denying the heroic commitment that militaries give on behalf of their nation. And I'm for one I'm thankful for that. Yes. There's no that is hero heroism, the ones who do it for the right reasons. Um and give their all for the good of people, not themselves. I mean, that is heroic. And it, it's why nations valorize their heroes. It's why when I was in the airport, uh, catching a flight down here to Orlando, in every airport I go to, there's a suite dedicated to people who are serving in the military. And while we're all waiting in cramped uh, seating, waiting for our plane getting sneezed on by people next to us, they're in a cushy couch with, uh, excellent internet service with TVs and drinks and beverages. There's a suite for them because this world honors the people who fight for this world. Yeah, sure. And uh, so my biggest beef with uh, the notion of joining the military is it, it presumes that the commitment that Christ is asking you for is small enough that you can do this as well. Yeah. It so diminishes the nature of the commitment that Christ asks of you mm. that you could do that on top of seeking first the kingdom. It presumes you can serve two masters. Yeah. 
And Jesus is very clear. Yeah. Man, discipleship demands too much of you to serve two masters. Yeah. How is it yes. that in the 21st century that has changed? And, and it is really true what you said before, that this also would apply to people who have sold their souls to business. Absolutely. As entrepreneurs, they become lovers of money and wealth uh, and so many other things. That, the music industry? Absolutely. To the financial services industry? Where, where <laughs> yeah, where idolatry sets in. and But I think the military question, this is why it's come up, is because it's you're dealing with violence, you're dealing with giving your life away, and you're dealing with this issue of allegiance, uh, which is wrapped up in the gospel of the kingdom. My answer to the question, and by the way, I don't disagree with anything you said, I, I can't see how anyone would refute it from the perspective of being a true disciple of Jesus. Now, being a an American Christian, I can see how that person would, would be having apoplexy right now listening to this. Uh, it would not compute and register anywhere in them. But to the person who has taken the challenge of Jesus seriously, this makes perfect spiritual sense. I would just add one point to it, and that is in questions like this, I would say if you have wholeheartedly given your whole life to Jesus Christ and your allegiance, I don't think someone needs to tell you, don't join the military or join the military. Your spiritual instincts and your conscience will lead you to answer that question for yourself. And especially in light of what John just shared, what you just shared, brother, hearing that, you should have within yourself a resonation. Your instincts are either saying yes, or you don't understand it, or they're saying no. And I wouldn't make that decision for you. On the other hand, if somebody said to me, I believe God has said to me, I want you to go into the military to be a witness and a testimony. And by the way, I've never met a person like that. <laughs> But I've heard people say that in other areas and in other things that I had major reservations about. My answer would be simply silence because I wouldn't talk you out of anything that you think God was telling you to as an individual now. And I wouldn't try to talk you into it or affirm it. Now, I would say if you're part of a community of believers, which I hope you are, the only thing I would tell you to do is pass it by them and listen to their collective wisdom. Don't just make a decision based on what you think God individualistically told you, especially about something as as drastic as that, wherein you could lose your life. Yeah. And if someone came to me as a part of their Christian community and asked me, uh, do you think this is okay? Uh, I would answer not with a legalistic yes or no, <laughs> right? Yes. That's the wrong way to answer it. Yep. Am I allowed to or am I not allowed to? I want to find out where the line is. How that, far can I go away from the kingdom that's the law. and it's that's, still okay? That's the voice of the that's, legalist right That's there. the wrong answer, right? I would want to ask, uh, what makes you think it's God who is calling you to this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to hear what they have to say. Absolutely. Where do you, what have you heard? What have you experienced? What is your motive for doing this? Yes. Is it for money? Right. Is it for financial security? Is it be for health benefits? Is it because you play so many violent video games that you want to do it in real life? Is it for discipline? Yeah. Is it for honor? Is it what, because you can't think of anything else to do? <laughs> yeah, like what is it that... And, and then I want to run those motives across the motives Christians are called to have in Scripture. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and so I... I um, and, and I think we should also clarify, you know, there's no such thing as into the military. There are specific roles That's in true. the world system. That's true. And and they're not all the same. And they don't all require as much from us. Um, so, you know, to be a uh, mailman, right, is, the fun is a function as a branch of the American government, the world system. Um, but they don't demand your whole life as a mailman. That's right. right? They don't demand you to be willing to kill fellow Christians oh, as a mailman. That's right. Um, so there may be functions, offices within the United States government, or maybe even within the United States military, uh, whose nature is not demanding your all, requiring your all, requiring you point. to set aside Christian Amen. convictions when you put on your work hat. Uh, so I don't, again, I don't want to give a legalistic description on the, on the basis of, I want to hear exactly what position you think you're 
preparing for? What does the training look like? What does the day-to-day activity look like? And how can you seek first God's kingdom as a witness in that job and have a vibrant relationship with your church family, the kingdom community that bears witness to God's kingdom? And also, too, I want to make a point, and we're modeling something here. This question was asked. We didn't just say, let's do a podcast on should you go into the military or not. And this is not something I weigh in. You won't find it in the book, Insurgents. But we're answering it because it was asked. And in my own personal life, I very rarely give unsolicited advice about anything. Uh, Only when I'm very clear that the Spirit of God is urging me to say something to someone along the lines of counsel or advice, I don't give unsolicited advice. And there are many reasons for that. But if someone came to me and asked me, then I would basically push toward having them really get in touch with their spiritual instincts and their conscience and probably let them listen to this podcast. Yeah. And if people are coming to us to hear, what does God's word say about it? Yeah. This is the conversation. And so it's it's got to be pretty extraordinary, this call that you feel. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there are extraordinary callings to people in the Bible. Well, on that note, I want to ask you a question that I heard someone thinking as we were speaking out there in cyberland. This is Hebrews 11.32. This is the Hall of Faith where the writer is extolling uh, the exemplars who live by faith. And here's what he says in verse 32. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, that's not Obama, folks, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, etc., etc. And we have the examples in the Old Testament, for example, as you know, of Israel, having an army formed among the people in the book of Samuel and onward. We have people like Joseph, David, Esther, that were working in the king's courts. We have this passage in Hebrews 11. So for the person who will point to these examples and say, here are examples of God's people acting in a military army war capacity, what say you, John Nugent? So there's a threefold response to this, and make sure I get all three in. All right. <laughs> the first dimension of an answer to this is to recognize what time is it in the story of God's people, right? So uh, the judges that were listed, uh, Samson, Gideon, right, Samuel, uh, these were people who were serving Israel when God was in the process of bringing them into a land and driving out of the land the Canaanites uh, who uh, were a threat to Israel's integrity. Right? They, if Israel was to become a set-apart people whose life together demonstrated God's righteousness to the nations and was a bright light that the nations would see their superior way of life and be drawn to Israel's God because of their witness, then the, the Canaanites needed to be driven out of the land. And all the people you listed there, including David, were a part of the process of God driving the Canaanites out of the land so that he can place his set-apart people in that land and shape them to become a nation like none other so that he could send the Messiah to them and equip them and empower them with his spirit and send them into the world, having inaugurated the kingdom, to fill this world with peaceful communities who evangelize with the gospel of peace. Um, So... These people were heroes because what God asked of them to do and what their time required, they did in faith. And their faith was to trust that it's not by human might, but by God's might, that the land is given into the hands of Israel. I mean, the David who is the hero is the David of David and Goliath. Mm -hmm. When Saul said, hey, take this armor, take this sword... David's like, no, this is not how you win. That's how Pete, That's how kingdoms of the world win. Mm. He's like, it's God who fights this for me. And if God's, if God's fighting for me, I can defeat anyone. 
But if I put on this sword, I'm saying it's me versus Goliath. But if I go out there half naked, I'm saying it's Goliath versus the Lord. Mm-hmm. These are the people who are being held up. They went into battle in faith that it's God who gives victory, yes. and he's given victory to God's people. Their faith made possible a set-apart people in Palestine who would learn the ways of the Lord, and in the fullness of time, Christ would gather them and fit them with the gospel of peace and send them with a peaceful mission to all the world to make disciples of all nations, offering God's gift of salvation. Mm. So in their time, that's what God was requiring. And so people who want to use their example as an example of what we should be doing, the burden is to express how in our time, God is using his people to take down people with the sword (laughs) to Mm. advance a worldly kingdom. And the answer of Scripture is that phase of the life of God's people is over. Jesus didn't come and establish a worldly kingdom with the sword. He said Mm -hmm. those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Um, He established a kingdom of peace, a set-apart people who will live among all the kingdoms of the world. Mm -hmm. And they will plant communities who would offer God's kingdom as a gift the people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So we're no longer in the phase of God's people of separate them from the nations and protect their borders with the sword. We're at the phase where God has sent us into the nations to infiltrate the nations with the gospel of peace. Uh, So to cite their example of why we should go to war on behalf of a worldly kingdom against another worldly kingdom, uh, it's a total non sequitur it doesn't follow at all none of these people fought for pagan kingdoms against other pagan kingdoms yeah that's not what they're extolled for they fought for god's kingdom when god was the one doing the fighting yeah so um so it's apples and oranges as a comparison and salvation history has moved forward now you raise another question about well what about the people like esther and daniel and uh, joseph Joseph, uh, yeah and moses right yeah godly people in at the center of the world system uh one thing about all those people well there are several things about all those people none of them grew up wanting to be there Mm. when you think about it how did moses end up in power there was a genocide of all the jewish kids and his mom feared for his life and sent him down the basket and down a river in a basket and he ended up being picked up by the right woman and he was raised as an egyptian as a Jew, he didn't aspire right. to power in Egypt so he could do anything on behalf of the Egyptian empire. Mm-hmm. Esther was conscripted with all the beautiful women because uh, the Persian king wanted another trophy wife. <laughs> this wasn't her vision. This is not what she wanted to grow up and be a Persian queen. That was not her aspiration. Mm-hmm. Daniel watched his home city be destroyed by the sword by the Babylonians and was hauled away as a prisoner of war and made to serve a pagan king. Not what he grew up wanting to do. Mm -hmm. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his own brothers, made a slave, and then somehow God uh, was able to save him and he ended up growing up in Egypt. So the first thing to observe about all these cases, these examples, these people didn't grow up wanting to serve the world power. They ended up there through abnormal circumstances um, most of which were against their will. Right. And yet, by the sovereign hand of God, that's where they were. Absolutely. And the second thing to observe about all of them is that all of them are cases in which the continued existence of God's people was on the line. And God was doing something drastic to preserve their life, the life and identity of the whole people of Israel. So when you think about Esther, her becoming queen was used by God to prevent an edict that was Haman's idea to kill all Jews throughout the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. God used her to prevent Jewish genocide. All Jews die, the mission is over. The Bible story ends there. There's no people for Jesus to come and gather and restore and send his missionaries to the nation. The existence of God's people was on the line. In uh, Joseph's day, there was going to be a famine in the land. God's people were going to die of famine. God uses Joseph providentially to bring Israel into a land with enough food that they can survive the famine. And he uses that land 
to multiply the people so that he can have his core community uh, that he could teach the law to and bring into the promised land. So it served as a pivotal transition in the peoplehood of God, preserving them from dying in Canaan and multiplying them for future mission. Uh, with Moses, <laughs> raises up Moses again to a position of influence only to take his people out of Egypt, to reject that connection with the Egyptians, right, and to uh, bring his people out of Egyptian slavery. So these are exceptional, exceptional mm. times. Yep. In the book of Daniel, the king was issuing edicts. Everyone who does not bow to the god of Babylon, everyone who prays to any god but the king of Babylon is to be killed which would have been all Jews. Yep. Daniel is providentially, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're providentially located there so that through their disobedience to the rulers, they might change the heart of a ruler to spare God's people who were in exile. So these are radically pivotal moments in salvation history where God uses a Jew who didn't want to be somewhere, who ended up there, uh, in order to accomplish something big for the peoplehood of God. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't sound to me like Jimmy wants a nice, secure career making the world a better place um, by uh, enlisting in the government of Turkey or Iraq or Greece or America. Yeah. Uh, the livelihood of the people of God is not on the line. The mission of God is not on the line. And uh, these people weren't volunteering for service because it was a good living. Uh, they were dragged there against their will, and God did something remarkable with it. Amen. Another question that people want to hear us weigh in on, and it's related to the question about going into the military or serving in the military, would a police officer, would a judge, would a lawyer be a appropriate or proper vocation for a disciple of Jesus, a person who has received the gospel of the kingdom, would those be appropriate vocations? Or would there be some conflict? And in addition to that, what about the examples of the centurion, the Roman centurion? Jesus never told him to leave his occupation of being a soldier. Uh, John the Baptist spoken to soldiers. While he did tell them to do certain things, he never said, leave that occupation. Speak to those two things. I'd love to hear where you come out on it. The first thing I would I would want to do, and like we spoke with before, is is not to frame this in a sort of legalistic way. Yeah. Is a Christian allowed to do this? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. I would I would rather frame it in terms of what would it look like for a Christian to seek first God's kingdom in the capacity of a lawyer. Yes. What would it look like to seek first God's kingdom? in a capacity of a police officer. And if that, if that question can be answered with integrity, right, in prayerful search of, of God's will for your life's direction, in dialogue with the faith community, brothers and sisters, uh, who aren't just yes men who tell you yes to everything you wanna do, yep. but who are willing to push back and, and make you think and critically assess whether uh, this calling of yours is truly from the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm open to an answer coming out to say, yeah, look at this way that serving as a police officer could be a radical demonstration of God's kingdom. <laughs> and so uh, I don't want people's answers to, to this question to be limited by my imagination of what I think is possible. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to see them ask the question, what would it look like to seek first God's kingdom while doing this? And I believe there are certain professions in certain times in certain places where the answer to that is no I can't really see that happening you know right. I, I could you know I could be a a church attendee in good standing and do this occupation but seek first God's kingdom right. in all aspects of my life including what I do in my nine-to-five mm -hmm. um, there may be certain circumstances where uh, what a job requires you to do and the amount of commitment it asks of you uh, go beyond a life that you could truly say of it. Now there's a life that sought first God's kingdom in all things. That said, um, I, have a, I have come up with a set of questions that I think are good for people to ask. 
who want okay. to evaluate Wonderful. Um, a specific job offer. Yeah. And so there's no such thing as the generic priesthood or lawyerhood. There's always a job in this law office, a job for this police department doing this function, right? Uh, and so here are questions uh, I think would be good, be good to ask. And one is, why do you feel called by God to do this? And, and that's a question we also asked of the military. What makes you feel like it's God who's calling you to do that? Right. And I would want to listen carefully to the answer that someone mm. might give for that. And, and that question really should be posed to any vocation or occupation, Absolutely. not just these that we're talking about. Yeah, and I would say all of these questions can apply to any vocational opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, a second question. Are the things you might be doing on the job, day in and day out, the sort of things Christians should be doing? Um, and so here you, you have the, um, the option, can a Christian you know, seek first God's kingdom while serving as a pimp? <laughs> right? No. The things you do, the nature of the service you're rendering, uh, is not the kind of thing a Christian should be doing. Uh, so are there aspects of your job that stand in fundamental tension with what a believer should be doing? Uh, if there are, then you have to think really strongly about whether that's a position that God is calling you to. And by the way, John is not saying that if you want to be a judge, police officer, or lawyer, that you are the equivalent of a pimp. That, that was not his point. <laughs> no, that's a hypothetical scenario. The pimp opens up the possibility that, right. because some people have the fuzzy notion that you can do anything to God's glory. Right. Right. And the pimp example is usually, that's one everyone can agree on. <laughs> so if we, that's hope, an, we hope everyone If that's an example that. <laughs> that we can all agree on, then we have to be open to the fact that there are other tasks yeah, in right. other less that's respectable right. jobs or in other more respectable jobs um, that also may stay in tension yeah. with the kind of things a believer should be doing. Uh, another question. Can you be fully Christian in terms of exemplifying the way of Christ and bearing witness to his kingdom while fulfilling this occupation? Mm -hmm. Can you be fully Christian um, and exemplifying the way of Christ while fulfilling this occupation? Uh, another question. Are there components of your training that Christians should avoid participating in? Right? Every activity that you repeatedly do uh, shapes your formation as a person. And since you're a disciple of Jesus Christ in all things, it's shaping your formation as a disciple. Uh, so what is the training required of this job? Is the kind of things that will be a part of your indoctrination, your training that stand in fundamental tension uh, with your calling in Christ? And here I think of Daniel, right? And um, his three friends in Babylon. They were being trained up to become uh, functional members of um, the Babylonian Empire. And they were called to do things in their training that they said no to. Uh, they were called to a certain diet, and they said no, uh, at the risk of losing their job and losing their heads. Mm -hmm. They were called to abstain from praying to any god but to the Babylonian king, and they said no. They were called to bow down when the music played uh, to the statue erected by the king, a symbol of imperial unity, and they refused. Um, and, and so the notion of, well... The ends justify the means. If I can just kind of grin and bear it and do things that stand in tension with my faith during my training so that once I get into the position, I can do good with it. Well, then that's not following the example we have in Scripture. Uh, whether that's a position that you can give God glory in has everything to do with whether uh, you can maintain your integrity even in the training for it. Another question to ask. Um, are there oaths and commitments you're required to make in the course of this job that um, are incompatible with your allegiance to Christ. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, scripture uh, raises a healthy suspicion to oaths. <laughs> yeah. And uh, committing to things, uh, let our yes be yes and our no be no. Don't say yes, I fully commit to something, we'll put it first in my life, when mm -hmm. you've already said that of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needs to be clear that we're not making commitments that stand in tension with our commitments that we've made to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, another a question we might ask, 
Will serving in this way shape you as a person in such a way that draws you away from Christ-likeness? I think that's a huge one to consider, uh, not only with these occupations we're talking about in this episode, but in every occupation. Let's repeat that again. I think that's excellent. Will serving in this way shape you as a person in such a way that draws you away from Christ-likeness? Mm. Uh, another question. Will the time commitments of this job leave you ample time to seek first God's kingdom with your life? That's right. And not just uh, leave you um, leftovers Drained. <laughs> from your job <laughs> yep. um, is what you have to work with. That's uh, excellent. To see first the kingdom. And that applies to so many other professions too, John, especially people who get involved in management. Uh, two more questions. Will participation in this work interfere with robust involvement uh, in the kingdom community? Mm-hmm. Um, will it interfere with commitments you've already made to brothers and sisters? Will you truly be able to rejoice when they rejoice, suffer with them when they're suffering, when when they're going through something, you're feeling it because you have such a deep life with them. Um, you know, or will your job so much occupy your time, energy, and resources that you actually lose touch with members of your church family? Uh, and finally, and, and this is similar to what you just mentioned, will performance of this work leave you with enough physical, mental, and emotional energy to seek first God's kingdom? Yeah. Or does it just so wipe you out that when you come home, mm-hmm. all you can do is veg out in front of the TV yeah. because you're spent? It sucks the life out of you. And then when the weekend comes, uh, because you've also been spent that you haven't really spent quality time with your family, you must dedicate all of your weekend to being with your biological family so and so that there's nothing have, for the church family. Well, your life then becomes my work, my family, and that's what I live, breathe, and have my being around and the kingdom of God, the kingdom community, in the form of a kingdom cell or a small group or a thriving ecclesia, whatever it may be, does not get the best part of you, let alone any part of you. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's so. exactly right. And if if they're not getting the best of us, then it cannot be said that we love them. Mm-hmm. Because Christian love means, and, and you read a passage from Paul in another one of the podcasts uh, that you, you do good for all people, but especially the family of believers. That's right. Uh, they get the first fruits of our time, energy, and resources. Yeah. Uh, and, and if they are just getting your leftovers, then you don't love them. You love the people you serve who get your best. Yeah. Amen. Those are the ones you really love. That's right. And otherwise, it's just lip service. And the ecclesia is, is an extended household, and, and even a kingdom cell, rightly envisioned and practiced, is an extended household. That's the Christian vision, that's the New Testament vision of what ecclesia was. Family, the family is the dominating metaphor for the church, it's not just a mm-hmm. metaphor, it's reality. That dominates beyond bride, body, house, etc. It is the family, made up of brothers and sisters, of newborns. Etc. Etc. Familial language pervades the New Testament and is punctuated all throughout because that is the reality of what the ecclesia is. I want to add another thing too here. There are also seasons in a person's life. Uh, for example, a person who is studying for a vocation, maybe in college, maybe in a trade school, and so a large chunk of their time is to study for a particular job. Right? That's a season. And I think, you know, the Lord understands seasons. It's woven into the fabric of life. And so there may be times where a person is studying for a vocation, when a person is preparing for a vocation that will take up a lot of their time, but it's a season. It ends, right? So consequently, I don't think you're suggesting that there are no seasons for preparation where you may have less time than in other times of your life. But if that becomes your whole life, like say a job that you're going to stay in every single month, every single year, uh, that's a totally different ball game yeah. than it being seasonal. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I had to face this question when I was in my PhD program. Um, how much can I give to my church family while I'm in this program? And, and I didn't say, 
Um, well, during this time, I'm just going to have to check out for six years. <laughs> um, I said, you know, I'm going to have to be deliberate mm-hmm. to make time for my church family while I'm doing this. Right. But they're going to, and they did, extend me the grace right. to say, you know, and I know there are some events that you're not going to be able to participate in. Right. Knowing exactly. that you want to be there. Right. Because you have assignments that you're up against the wall with. Yeah. And they know, and they extend me that grace because they know that I haven't left them as a family, that I do give them the first fruits of my time, my energy, and my resources. Um, and it was seasonal. And it, it was didn't seasonal. occupy your entire life. Yeah. And especially like family during uh, birth time, right? There a newborn. Go. There I mean, you go. It's another um, season. <laughs> that's, that's a crazy time. And, and we expect to see less of certain church members, but we also expect them to welcome us into that process. Right. To allow us to ease their burden uh, when they go through this season and so we've actually found ways as a community to be heavily involved during times that in the world you would just shut everyone else out but your biological family uh, we go out of our way to include our church family in those times uh, but onto the question of well what about the examples in scripture so you know when you ask this set of questions I think uh, there's a possibility that some forms of policing would satisfy these questions yes uh and uh that other police offices functions would not satisfy them um and when you look at um and the same could be say lawyering right um and when you look at um the officials that we encounter in the new testament right the uh the roman centurions that you know uh, John the Baptist had to say, what do you have to do to prepare for the kingdom? He didn't say quit your jobs. That's right. Um, and when you look at Jesus healed a centurion's daughter, uh, Jairus' daughter, and he didn't say, and by the way, quit your job. The Philippian jailer, we don't have immediately, you need to give up working for the world system of the Roman Empire uh, by locking up people who might include Christians. <laughs> right? Um and so, uh, in Cornelius' household, right, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on a Roman centurion's household as, as the first uh, experience of the Holy Spirit on the part of Gentiles, right? So you have these Roman officials at key points in the narrative. And the, the first thing I would say about those who hold them up as kind of a, hey, look, we have these officials who were never told to quit their jobs, so a Christian can join the army and, and work for the American world system. Uh, just like they were allowed to work for the Roman world system. Uh, I would say be careful how you use these examples. John the Baptist's account is not an account of what does it mean to be a kingdom citizen. Right. He is preparing them for the Messiah to come. Amen. How do you get ready to hear the bombshell of the kingdom that the Messiah is going to bring? And John the Baptist admits, one who is coming after me, who, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Um, that that he is just a beginning, but the Messiah will sh- will take them the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so John is not converting these soldiers to the way of Jesus. Yes, <laughs> and so his instruction to them is not a model for what it means to be a kingdom citizen. That's uh, right. And that example doesn't carry the weight people think. Similarly, when Jesus heals Jairus's daughter, uh, this is no conversion account. That's right. This is simply a healing of someone as an example that even the Gentiles are capable of great faith. Right. And Jairus, remind you, those that are listening, was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier at a high level. Yes. But he was not converted. That's right. right? Now, the book of Acts is overt that Cornelius' household is the first conversion of Gentiles. And so any, any Gentile that's mentioned in the Gospels is not an ex- any centurion, any soldier, is not an example of the conversion of a Roman official. Mm-hmm. It is an interaction Jesus had with them. It wasn't him calling them to follow him and telling them what it will take to become a follower. Uh, Jairus, as far as we know, never converted, never became a part of the way. But his trust that Jesus could heal his daughter even from a distance was used by Jesus as an example of the kind of faith he wished his own followers had in him. Yeah. Um, so this is not a conversion account. And had Jesus been converting him, 
he may have asked tough things of him. What questions he would have asked, we don't know. We know that someone wanted to bury their father first before following Jesus, and Jesus didn't give them a friendly answer. Mm-hmm. So why would we expect that Jesus would give a free pass to a Roman centurion, that there would be nothing in the centurion's life that would have to change? Okay. Uh, another example, and, and this is the biggie, uh, the centurion's household in Acts upon whom the Holy Spirit came and these people heard the gospel of the kingdom. They were baptized. This is a conversion account. Uh, so there you would expect if becoming a disciple uh, required them to forsake their job, that that would have been told. And it's not. That's a great question to ask. I mean, that's the money passage, right? If we want to go to the New Testament for examples. Uh, but I would say that as much as this is a conversion account, uh, it is not an example of how people's lives need to change when they convert. There's nothing in this passage that said that the Roman centurion or anyone in his household had to repent. Uh, this is not a repentance account. This account doesn't list what had to change in their life for them to become a disciple. Uh, that account is strikingly absent of any talk about this. Rather, it's an account of Look how the Holy Spirit has come upon Gentiles just like it came upon the 12 apostles in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The point of this passage is see how the Holy Spirit has come upon Gentiles and that the Gentile mission has beginning has begun. That's the point of the passage. And so the details left out are, well, in what ways did the Gentiles have to change their life? Uh, what sin was there in the Roman centurion's life? that he needed to repent of and that his wife needed to repent of and that his children needed to be repent of and that the servants of his house had to repent of. We're not told anyone had to repent of anything because this isn't about in what way did their life need to change. This is about how the mission of God has changed to include Gentiles, Mm -hmm. uh, that the Spirit would be poured upon even the Gentiles. And so this account is silent on what had to change. And some people read into that silence that, well, since he wasn't told that he had to quit his job, that he was never told that. Well, the fact is we don't know what he was told. We, we don't know. Yeah, that's, that's um, a good way of putting it. We and, just don't know. And the same thing about the Philippian jailer. Yep. Uh, we don't know how his life had to change. Um, Zacchaeus, we are told, right? He was someone who collected taxes for the Roman Empire. And we're told that some things had to change. He went and everyone that he ripped off, he made amends to. He took all the profits that he made off of ripping people off and collecting taxes and he uh, liquidated it <laughs> and distributed among those who were in need. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are, when we are given examples of people who repented, we see concrete things had to change and even had to change about his job. And when Zacchaeus radically changes his life like this, uh, the gospel writer says, salvation has come to this house today. Yes. Uh, so we can't read into accounts that aren't conversion accounts. That's right. Um, what had to change in their life? The truth is we don't know what had to change. The Philippian jailer, uh, we don't know what had to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean nothing had to change. And it certainly doesn't mean that uh, there was nothing wrong in their life. They were sinless. If you want to be legalistic about reading the passage, the fact that they weren't called to repent means that they had nothing to repent of. I think rather we would assume that they had much to repent of. We're just not told what that was. What that was. Yeah, it's it's a good point. My understanding, too, from church history is that for, for the first few centuries of the church's existence, meaning the people of God, the Christians did not enter into the military. Yeah, that is true. And the reason is because of what Jesus said about loving your enemy, and what Jesus said about taking a life, and some of the questions that you had raised earlier in this podcast. By the way, uh, for the three people who are left listening to this, who haven't turned it off, I want to make a, a comment. I have known police officers who were followers of Jesus. Some of them left their vocation simply because they began to see the effects of that job on their mind, on their heart, even over and above the time and energy it was draining from them, just the field in which they were in, it was not compatible for them 
to follow Jesus Christ all the way and stay in that profession. I have also known other police officers who were full-fledged disciples of Jesus and, as far as I know, continue to do that work today. And the same for lawyers. I'm friends with some people who are lawyers, and they do not see an incompatibility with the profession. Others left it for that reason. So, again, I want to stress that we're not giving you any kind of rules. We're not giving you any kind of dictates or demands or commands. And we're certainly not saying you should or you shouldn't. But I think it's wise to ask these questions that we've raised, not only for the specific vocations we've outlined via the questions, but for any vocation. Yes, that's, I mean, that's the main point. Exactly. We're not the ones singling out these positions. People are coming to us asking about these positions precisely because they sense in their experience that there might be tension. And so this is, you know, what questions to ask when you sense that there might be tension between them. Absolutely. Here are the kinds of questions you should really ask. Yeah. And that's wisdom. That's wisdom. Um, I would say this about the early church and the military. Yes. Uh, Just like in every age, there are people who say yes and then become half-hearted followers. There are many people who stayed in their vocations or embraced vocations, they went under the banner of Jesus and continued to serve in all sorts of capacities, right? So there were so there were some early Christians who uh, did serve in the military pretty early on, um, but they were not early Christians in good standing with the church because we read about them in letters that are critiquing them, <laughs> right? Um, and matter of fact, we have early church catechisms, like instruction manuals for discipleship. Uh, and these, these reflect the values of what the early church was teaching. And those catechisms instruct uh, people who are believers not to go into that profession. Uh, and not just because that profession was filled with idolatry, but as you mentioned, not to go into that because it is full of bloodshed. Um, and there are instructions that if you are in this profession, you must not profit off of it at the expense of others, and you must not employ the sword against others. And if in their capacity um, they could not resist those two activities, uh, then they were required by the church to leave their jobs. So some did it because there are always people who are rebellious (laughs) and not obedient to the dictates of Christ. But we don't have any evidence that Christians did this with the blessing of the church. Hmm. And that's, that's I think, is a, just a distinction that might be helpful. Because someone might be said, well, I've heard that there were. Yeah, they were. There's evidence that they were doing that, but not with the church's blessing. Right. For that, there is no evidence. Yeah. And, and that was the church's posture in those years. This is post-New Testament we're talking about. All that to say, I thank God that there are people serving as police officers I thank God for lawyers, (laughs) well, some of them, (laughs) and judges who are just. So I don't want anyone to just misinterpret. I don't want anyone to misinterpret what we're saying as an unthankfulness for these roles in the world. We're simply raising questions about whether or not a disciple of Jesus who is seeking the kingdom of God first and receive the gospel of the kingdom, if that's the best role for you to play, and, of course, only you can answer that question with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And, and I have a testimony of just this year, my church family experienced the blessing of a Christian lawyer. Mm. Who, one of our members uh, had applied for government-subsidized housing. Uh, his place in line finally came up. He had waited patiently for years. And it was really what he needed in his life situation. And uh, the apartment complex that he used to live in slandered him and misrepresented him, and he was denied. And he was an older gentleman. And there was uh, a lawyer friend of mine who's a graduate of the same college I went to, and I brought up with him the issues, and he went to bat for the brother in the body of Christ. And the kind of law he practices is to protect uh, aging uh, people, the elderly, who are being ripped off by systems and that the world system is kind of chewing up and spitting out. And uh, he goes to bat for them and fights for them and protects them from injustice. And as far as I can tell, the service of that brother uh, was entirely 
in keeping with the kingdom of God. Perfect. All right. Well, there you have it. Until next time, behave yourselves, huh? If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.